On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to the Chess Journal April 2020 podcast. My name is Gretchen Winter, and I am the editor of the Chess Podcast Session. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a terrific conversation on transbronchial cryobiopsy for the diagnosis of interstitial lung diseases. We are fortunate to have Dr. Fabian Maldonado as our guest. Dr. Maldonado is a professor of medicine, thoracic surgery, and mechanical engineering at Vanderbilt University, where he also serves as the program director of the Interventional Pulmonology Fellowship. He is a member of the board of directors of the American Association of Bronchology and Interventional Pulmonology, and he serves on several steering committees for the American College of Chest Physicians and the American Thoracic Society. Dr. Maldonado and colleagues wrote the CHESS Guideline and Expert Panel Report on Transbronchial Cryobiopsy for the Diagnosis of Interstitial Lung Diseases, which we will be discussing today. Dr. Maldonado, the panel's first recommendation is that you do suggest that transbronchial cryobiopsy can be used to provide histopathologic findings for multidisciplinary discussion diagnosis. But this is a weak recommendation with very low quality evidence for the guidelines. Can you tell us more about the research that led you to this weak recommendation? Sure. Well, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to talk today. So this, I think, is a really important uh, discussion to be had. Uh, the, uh, I'll probably provide a little bit of background on how we came about to working on these guidelines. So. The, the uh, cryobiopsies have been around for a long time in interventional pulmonology, but just in the past decade have become more used in the periphery of the lung. And the, uh, the main indication for cryobiopsy has been diffuse parenchymal lung diseases or interstitial lung disease. And, and the procedure gets picked up by a lot of people with a wide variety of techniques and a wide variety of outcomes and complications. And as an uh, interventional pulmonary community, we decided perhaps it was time to try to at least standardize the procedure and provide some guidance. And, you know, admittedly, the data is uh, scarce. There's um, uh, not a whole lot of uh, quality studies, but we thought it was an important time to do that. Now, the rationale for, for biopsies is that in spite of having uh, transitioned from the histological gold standard in the early 2000s to the, this multidisciplinary discussion, which essentially consists of having clinician, radiologists, and pathologists discuss the case together, which has been shown to improve confidence in the diagnosis. The uh, histology uh, and biopsy specimens remain an important part of the conversation. And traditionally, this has been done with surgical lung biopsy, uh, primarily because the uh, uh, lung pathologists need to have a good view of the lung architecture, particularly in usual interstitial pneumonia, which is the most common histological pattern or diagnosis. And this requires uh, an examination at low magnification, so the size of the biopsies needs to be substantial. And so surgical lung biopsy traditionally has been the way to go. What we've discovered in the past 20 years is that they are associated with a number of complications. And in fact, there was a large, very influential paper published in the Blue Journal in 2016 by Hutchinson and colleagues that showed a very high inpatient mortality for elective procedures with a rate of mortality in-house after the a biopsy of 1.7%, which is pretty dramatic, but in non-elective procedures, in those patients that were declining rapidly, that mortality rate was 16%. Uh, and this is the largest retrospective we have on the on very large uh, inpatient care database in the United 
States, the complication rate was quite high too. And this increases with age and UIC pattern and comorbidities, et cetera. Now, obviously, these are aggregate data that doesn't necessarily apply to specific expert centers and expert surgeons, but clearly it raises a red flag. And so um, an alternative to histological biopsy specimens uh, has been uh, you know, felt to be very important. Now, conventional bronchoscopic forceps biopsies are useful in selected situations. Uh, if we have hypersensitivity pneumonia, we'll find maybe ill-defined granulomas around the airways or organizing pneumonia. Obviously, an alternative diagnosis like lymphangiid carcinomatosis. The yield of conventional forceps biopsies all commerce in aggregate for diffuse lung disease is about 20 to 30%. And so there was really a drive to come up with a strategy that would leverage the benefits of bronchoscopy being minimally invasive yet providing sufficiently large samples of, of high quality uh, um, for, for the diagnosis to be made. And cryobiopsy came on the scene uh, in 2009 and from then on it was picked up by a, a large number of centers. And the advantages of cryobiopsies is that with the cryoprobe that can be passed through the working channel of the scope, uh, we can freeze a large piece of lung tissue and extract it from the lung. The problem with that is that uh, once the lung thaws, if we've taken a piece of bronchial artery or pulmonary vein along with it, then there's a high risk of, of bleeding. And that's been the main complication uh, with, with cryobiopsy, along with pneumothorax, which is anywhere from 10 to 20%. So uh, uh, a lot of concerns about the potential risks of the cryobiopsy. So it was important to, to review not only the diagnostic yield, but also the complications. And so, um, as uh, uh, my co-chair, Lonnie Yarmouth from Hopkins and I um, decided to convene a panel of experts with very uh, varied opinions about cryobiopsies uh, uh, from the get-go, and then uh, with the help of a methodologist from CHAS, Lindsay Fraser, we reviewed all the available, you know, uh, relatively good quality data, and that's, that's a big word there, but uh, uh, the best quality data we had on cryobiopsy, so comparative data when possible, and at least uh, retrospective studies uh, and, and excluding case reports and so on. And so with regards to the diagnostic yield, uh, there's, uh, we found that there were really three lines of evidence for this. There were, there were papers that were retrospective in nature looking at the diagnostic yield, uh, and the yield has been traditionally uh, anywhere from 80 to 85 percent. In our meta-analysis, it was 82 percent. Uh, the problem with the yield as an outcome variable is that this is highly dependent on how we define yield. And so uh, if you define yield as fibrosis or normal lung or inflammation, then the yield will be very high. If you are more granular in your diagnosis and look for UIT pattern and SIT pattern, then the yield drops considerably. And so the quality of the studies there is uh, uh, unequal and, and difficult sometimes to, to uh, assess. Now, a better way to look at the diagnostic yield of cryobiopsy versus surgical biopsy is to look at the respective contribution to the diagnosis within the context of a multidisciplinary discussion. Uh, this was a paper that was published by Sarah Tomasetti in Blue Journal uh, a few years ago, and, and showing that in spite of a slightly decreased histological yield the respective contribution of prior biopsies and surgical lung biopsies to the uh, multidisciplinary diagnosis looking at confidence in the diagnosis was essentially the same for a fraction of the rate of complications for, for prior biopsy. And so that was important 
Again, with the main caveat here that we can be highly confident of a diagnosis and be confidently wrong about the diagnosis. And so, uh, again, that's a better endpoint, but not uh, a, a fantastic endpoint. And so there are two studies that came out in the past year, 2019, one from France and a larger study uh, from Australia looking at the same endpoint, which was essentially taking cryobiopsies and surgical lumbiopsies in the same area of the lung and, and looking at the rate of concordance between the two. Uh, the Romagnoli paper, which was uh, highly influential, came a few months before the more definitive study called the Cold Ice Study, which was the multi-center study from Australia. The inter-observer agreement uh, in the Romagnoli paper was pretty poor, the, uh, and there was only 21 patients in the study. Four of these patients had non-diagnostic cryobiopsies that were included in the analysis. And interestingly, there were, uh, uh, in terms of histology, two histological diagnoses made by cryobiopsies that were accepted by the multidisciplinary discussion in spite of alternative surgical lumbar specimen, and five surgical lumbar specimen accepted in the multidisciplinary discussion in terms of uh, histological yield versus cryobiopsy. So there, there, there was not enough power in the study to kind of tease out the respective benefits of surgical lumbiopsy and, and cryobiopsy. And clearly there seems to be some sampling issues in both techniques, although our data suggests that the histologic yield of surgical lumbiopsy remains uh, superior to that of cryobiopsy. I think in terms of contribution to the, to the multidisciplinary diagnosis remains unclear. Now, the cold eye study was a much larger study, 65 patients that did exactly the same thing, cryobiopsy, surgical lumbiopsy in the same area of the lung, and find a much better rate of concordance. So, uh, 0.7 in terms of agreement between cryobiopsy and surgical lumbiopsy, and for those diagnoses with moderate to high confidence in the diagnosis, uh, then that concordance was, was excellent, but more than 90%. So, this would suggest that the, uh, the, 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 the contribution of cryobiopsy in terms of diagnosis for interstitial lung disease is quite good. Uh, and then, of course, we looked at complication rates and found that this complication rate was, was quite lower, at least in the reported studies that we have, uh, compared to that of surgical lung biopsy. Excellent. So you report that surgical lung biopsies have a higher diagnostic yield but are riskier than transbronchial cryobiopsies overall. So do you have any direction for how providers should be choosing an initial diagnostic method in their patients? Sure, and again, I'm, I'm gonna reemphasize what I said earlier, is that you know, we look at aggregate data and, and you know, in, in medicine, when we do research, we apply population-based data to individual uh, uh, patient situations, which is always uh, tricky, obviously. Uh, and so, you know, at, at an aggregate uh, level, at a systematic review slash meta-analysis level, uh, why would do, we have limited comparative uh, data with regards to cryobiopsy versus surgical lumbiopsy and, 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 and complications. The data that we do have suggests that the rate of complications with cryobiopsy is less than that of surgical lumbiopsy, as you pointed out. Now, this is obviously going to be very different based on individual patient and center situations. You know, if, you, if you're in an expert center that has a wide expertise in doing surgical lung biopsies in a minimally invasive fashion, vats or uniportal vats, for instance, uh, sometimes in awake patients, uh, as it's been done, um, with excellent uh, lung pathology, expertise, 
uh, and, and, and obviously depending on the patients that you select for these procedures, if, if these patients are sick, actively declining, older patients, then they're more likely to have significant complications from any procedure, including BALs and conventional forceps biopsies. So whatever data we're able to extract from our review of the literature needs to be individualized to uh, specific patient situations. That's very important. Patient preferences being a big part of this decision-making process too. Now the complications are a little bit different when we look at surgical lung biopsy versus cryobiopsy. The main concern with surgical lung biopsy is really the rate of acute exacerbations after biopsy. And this really stemmed from an early paper by one of my former colleagues at Mayo, Jim Youth, that published in 2001 a series of a, a number of surgical lung biopsies in whom um, UIP was eventually the final diagnosis and he found that 16% of these patients uh, uh, had passed away within 30 days of the biopsy, which was a big kind of red flag for surgical lung biopsy at the time. And there were many concerns that these patients were already very sick when they had the biopsy. This was a last resort uh, attempt to make a diagnosis. And clearly this seemed to be the case because the vast majority of these patients had diffuse outward damage on biopsies, which would suggest that they were indeed um, uh, under, um, um, undergoing an acute exacerbation of the disease. And perhaps these are patients that we would not submit to any kind of biopsy today. Uh, but, but this is the main concern, and this high rate of acute exacerbation and, and mortality after uh, biopsy was confirmed in, this, in, in that larger Hutchinson study that I mentioned earlier, where the rate of mortality clearly was, was very high as well, 1.7% for stable patients slash elective procedures versus 16% for non-elective procedures, presumably patients that were acutely declining at the time of the biopsy. So, so this is the main risk of, of surgical lung biopsy that is feared and felt to be perhaps more likely secondary to not only the trauma of the surgical procedure itself, but also the type of anesthesia people are getting with high FiO2, high tidal volume, uh, fluid overload, transfusions, and so on that can uh, exacerbate the risk of diffuse outdoor damage, RES, and so on. Um, <clears throat> in terms of cryobiopsy, the main risk that we are concerned about is really the bleeding. Uh, and, and the rate of acute exacerbation seems to be much lower than in the case of surgical lumbatsy. So clearly the bleeding is a major issue. And, and the reason for this, as I mentioned earlier, is that we take large pieces of lung tissue that we extract and block with the bronchoscope. These large, sometimes half a centimeter biopsies cannot get extracted through the working channel of the scope. So both the scope and the cryoprobe need to be pulled at the same time out of the patient's lungs. And so there is a kind of a blind time during which we don't know what's going on down in the lung and there may be some, some bleeding that starts happening. And if there is no preventative bronchial blocker placement that can be inflated to mitigate this risk, then there's a possibility for life-threatening bleeding. And this is really the main, main concern here. And, and, and so, Yes, cryobiopsies in aggregate seem to be, have a lower risk profile than surgical lung biopsy, but there are clearly life-threatening complications as well. I spend a lot of time when I sit down with patients going over the risk profile of surgical lung biopsy, um, cryobiopsy, conventional biopsies, and doing nothing, and then we kind of base our, uh, uh, the patients base their, their decision-making uh, process based on that. Um, 
So, so again, I think it's important to understand that, that cryobiopsy is not a benign procedure. It's not the typical BL conventional forceps biopsy uh, intervention. There are clear risks associated with the procedure. The risk of severe bleeding is probably 1%. Uh, the risk of pneumothorax is anywhere from 10 to 20%. So uh, clearly pay, uh, providers that are interested in doing this procedure should be um, uh, competent in performing bronchoscopy, chest replacements, and, and cryobiopsy. Uh, and the rate of mortality is not insignificant. So we have now a very, not a very large amount of data, but we have a substantial amount of data that suggests that the mortality rate after cryobiopsy is probably close to 0.5% and perhaps a little higher if we consider 30 and 90 day mortality. And so uh, again, this is something that remains a high risk procedure, perhaps one of the highest risk procedures that we do in interventional pulmonology and we need to be very humble uh, and very uh, mindful of the potential complications when we think about potentially doing this. Thank you. So you recommend that for patients with suspected ILD who are undergoing transbronchial cryobiopsy, that the biopsy should be done from at least two sites. Why is that and what are the risks and benefits of that approach? Okay, right. Uh, so, the, I mean, there clearly is data in the uh, uh, interstitial lung disease literature specifically pertaining to usual interstitial pneumonia, which again is the uh, histological pattern slash diagnosis that is the sine qua non condition to make a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is the most common of all ILD, um, that uh, uh, UIP can be present in certain areas of the lung but not in others. So there's this patchy distribution of, of usual interstitial pneumonia in the lung. And clearly what was uh, demonstrated in the early 2000s is that so, uh, about 25% of patients ultimately diagnosed with usual interstitial pneumonia have UIP patterns in, in one lobe and maybe NSFP pattern in a different lobe. And so the recommendations for years in uh, the surgical literature was to biopsy at these two different lobes based on the data, which makes sense and, and can be um, extrapolated to the cryobiopsy practice. If it's true of surgical lung biopsy, then clearly it's going to be true for smaller biopsies, uh, such as cryobiopsy. So that's the first kind of conceptual argument to sample different areas of the lung. We actually have some data in randomized fashion and retrospective fashion showing that biopsy of two segments uh, of the same lobe as opposed to one segment increases the yield significantly, about 20%. Uh, that is a, a significant increase in diagnostic yield that is um, uh, counterbalanced by an increased risk of pneumothorax. So doing the same biopsies in the same segment uh, um, will have pneumothorax rates in that study at least about 16%. That increased to about 25% when uh, uh, more than one segment is being sampled. Again, this does not address the interlobar heterogeneity of UIP, and so our practice uh, has been to biopsy two different lobes. Uh, again, this needs to be uh, considered in the face of the increased potential risk of complications, and I mentioned the increased risk of pneumothorax. There's also a risk of bleeding that's not insignificant as we come approximately uh, in the lung, biopsying right middle lobe or right upper lobe, then the um, um, possibility to occlude the airway uh, successfully without uh, getting um, 
negative consequences in terms of gas exchange and so on is going, going to be more difficult. But if we put the blocker in the right lower lobe bronchus and only isolate a few segments of the right lower lobe, then that, that's good. That shouldn't have major consequences in terms of patient oxygenation and so on. But with including the right mince and bronchus, you can imagine that can be an, an issue. So um, again, um, uh, recommend to do at these two different sites, uh, we purposefully remain a little vague uh, in these recommendations because the data is not great. But again, conceptually, I think there's clearly uh, a rational, uh, rational argument to be made with regards to biopsying two different lobes with the understanding that uh, the bronchial blocker uh, will be blocking a larger area of the lung with potential negative consequences uh, as we get more proximal. You also suggest that in patients with suspected ILD who are undergoing transbronchial cryobiopsy, that the tip of the cryoprobe should be located one centimeter from the pleura. But in the text of the guidelines, it says that the literature search did not return studies that addressed the impact of the distance from the pleura on either safety or diagnostic yield. Is there any anecdotal concern that more distance from the pleura might decrease your diagnostic yield? Uh, th there are theoretical concerns for this. Uh, as you pointed out, there's no evidence from the literature and no data to suggest uh, one way or the other. This um, uh, decision to recommend to get the biopsy one centimeter for the pleura was very pragmatic in nature and, and, and very theoretical in nature. And so the idea is that, at least for usual interstitial pneumonia, which is, again, the most common histological pattern slash diagnosis within the realm of ILD, uh, the major abnormalities are going to be located at the level of the secondary lobule, which would be in the subfloral area. And this is why, for instance, some centers, which are very keen on, on, on sampling the secondary lobule, uh, will have a higher rate of pneumothorax. So if we look at the data from uh, Forley, Italy, with Venerino Paletti, who's been probably doing the most cryobiopsies file in the world, uh, at least reported the most. Uh, they have a rate of pneumothorax that is very consistent, about 20 to 25%. And they're not really bothered by this. They put a chest tube and just assume that's a normal uh, consequence of the procedure as opposed to a complication. Uh, now, you can probably get the same information by being a little bit more proximal. Uh, one centimeter was kind of decided, it varies one, two centimeters based on the uh, publications. Uh, but these, again, are, are purely uh, theoretical, you know, um, uh, concerns. The idea here is that one centimeter, one centimeter from the plot will allow us to sample the secondary lobule of the lung and increase the likelihood of making a diagnosis of UIP, yet not be proximal enough that the uh, rate of bleeding complications becomes higher. The, the more proximal we are in that peripheral lung and the higher risk of lacerating a bronchial artery or pulmonary vein that would lead to severe complications. So we, can, we have to balance uh, the risk of pneumothorax being too distal with the risk of uh, moderate to severe bleeding when we're too proximal. And one centimeter from the plot seems to be a good, uh, uh, a good location. It actually matches exactly the metal tip of the cryoprobe, so it's fairly easy to see uh, when we pull on the probe what that one centimeter represents uh, and get the biopsy from there. Now, the recommendations include the prophylactic use of a bronchial blocker, either through an endotracheal tube or a rigid bronchoscope in patients who are undergoing transbronchial cryobiopsy. Can you tell us more about the evidence behind that recommendation and potential risks and benefits of that strategy? 
Right, and again, uh, there, there was not a lot of data with regards to comparative studies on uh, one uh, technical practice versus another. Uh, there is one observational study that addressed the influence of prophylactic bronchoblocker in cryobiopsies. It was a relatively small study, but in that small study, there was clearly an increased risk of bleeding uh, with, uh, without prophylactic balloon placement. Um, we went back and forth as a uh, guideline committee and expert panel with regards to whether we should recommend this or not. Uh, clearly, there are expert interventional pulmonologists out there that have been using rigid bronchoscopy, for instance, that did not feel that the prophylactic balloon placement was necessary because obviously with a rigid bronchoscope, it's relatively straightforward to manage uh, a distal bleed in the lungs. It's not the case with flexible bronchoscopy. And again, the main risk with cryobiopsy that can easily become life-threatening to the patient is bronchial bleeding. And so we felt that using the opportunity to put these guidelines out there, we out to patients to provide the uh, best recommendations we, we can with regards to ensuring safety of, of cryobiopsy practice. And the bronchial blocker we felt was uh, something we really wanted to suggest as uh, a systematic prophylactic uh, technique to prevent these types of complications. Finally, you recommend the use of a small cryoprobe rather than a larger cryoprobe, which may reduce the risk of complications. Does the smaller size of the cryoprobe affect the diagnostic yield of the biopsy negatively? So it does not appear to be the case uh, that it affects the diagnostic yield negatively. This was looked at by Claudia Raviglia from the same center in, in Forli, Italy. Uh, they looked back at a fairly large cohort of almost 700 patients and did not see any difference in terms of diagnostic yield with regards to the size of the probe. Uh, what was different was the uh, rate of pneumothorax, which was higher with the higher probe, which makes sense, probably get bigger biopsies with a cryoprobe, cryo bigger cryoprobe. Uh, no difference in terms of, of bleeding complications and other uh, outcomes we looked at. Um, the, the main reason to use a small probe, in my view, is that when you use a 1.9 millimeter cryoprobe with a therapeutic video bronchoscope with a 2.8 millimeter working channel, it's fairly easy to feel the edge of the lung and the pleura when we get there. And this is a very important part of the procedure because it's really when we feel the edge of the lung and the pleura that we know to pull that cryoprobe back, uh, cryoprobe back about a centimeter to get our biopsy. Now, we also recommended to use fluoroscopy for the same reason. And there's data suggesting that the risk of complication is less when we use fluoroscopy. Uh, the issue with fluoroscopy is that we're looking at a, uh, a single plane fluoroscopy. It's very difficult to infer from the image where that probe is located with regards to the pleura. Give us a clue, particularly if we're you know, in the plane of the fluoroscopy beam, but otherwise it, it's difficult. So the tactile feedback from the prior probe touching the pleura becomes very important. That feedback, if we use a 2.4 millimeter cryoprobe in a 2.8 millimeter working channel, is going to be lost to an extent. The signal is going to be dampened, and it's very hard to know when we're actually hitting the pleura versus just friction of that cryoprobe in the working channel. So that really, in our view, uh, uh, increases the risk of, of positioning the cryoprobe in the wrong location and therefore increasing the risk either of pneumothorax to distal or bleeding into proximal.
Now, during your extensive literature review, did you find evidence supporting differing diagnostic yields of or complications from transbronchial cryobiopsy differing by whether it's performed at a high volume or low volume center? We did not, but again, uh, because there was no such data available, uh, I think it makes intuitive sense that it should be the case that expert centers are going to have uh, a better yield and less complications than non-expert centers. And so again, I think it's very important for uh, uh, patients interested in considering these procedures to do their research and make sure that uh, their interventional pulmonologist has a successful track record of doing this. Uh, this is difficult right now because as opposed to our uh, surgeon colleagues, we do not have an official, uh, easily accessible registry that uh, keeps track of all these complications and diagnostic yields and so on. And this is something that we're working on and I think is going to be mandatory going forward. Uh, uh, but again, I think intuitively it makes sense that uh, getting your biopsy done at an expert center, whether it's a surgical lung biopsy or a cryopsy or even a conventional forceps biopsy, as part of a multidisciplinary approach to the diagnosis with expert lung pathologists that know how to interpret smaller biopsy specimens uh, and, and able to feel confident in um, establishing the diagnosis of fusual interstitial pneumonia, for instance, which traditionally has been done on much larger surgical lung biopsy specimens, is becoming very important. So again, I think this is uh, an evidence-free statement, but an important one to be made, I think, that, that cryobiopsies should always, in my view, be done at expert centers. What further research would you like to see on the topic of transbronchial cryobiopsy for the diagnosis of ILD in order to better refine the panel's recommendations? Well, I think some of the uh, future research projects that I'd like to see are not necessarily specific to cryobiopsy, but, but relevant to biopsies in ILD in general. And, and I think from coming at it from the interventional pulmonary uh, background, uh, with a little bit of ILD background, because I was in the ILD clinic when I was at Mayo, uh, I think it's very surprising that we don't have any good data suggesting any effect of biopsies on patient outcomes with ILD. Uh, and so there's a lot of building data on quantitative imaging, for instance, looking at, uh, um, you know, qualitative and quantitative follow-up uh, and diagnosis of interstitial lung disease based on high-res CT, for instance. There's also recent data suggesting that a progressive fibrotic lung disease process may be equally respons responsive to antifibrotic medications, regardless of the underlying histology, and there's a lot of questions as to what this means with regards to the need for biopsies going forward uh, and a variety of biomarkers that have been uh, um, either studies or even approved recently uh, trying to refine the diagnostic algorithm of, of ILD. So I think the question of do we in, in, in 2020 and going forward need uh, biopsy specimens to improve patient outcomes is something that's not very clear or not clear at all to, to any. So that's what I'd like to see. Uh, in terms of, of cryobiopsy research specifically, I think a big gap here has been uh, the educational opportunities and, and assessing what it means to be competent in performing this type of advanced bronchoscopy procedures. Uh, there's also uh, new technology arriving on the scene. So just a few weeks ago or a month ago or so, the mini probe, uh, cryoprobe was FDA approved 
which will be uh, a 1.2 millimeter, uh, I believe, cryoprobe that can be pulled out through the working channel of the scope. Now, this will provide smaller specimens, obviously, because they have to go through the 2.8 millimeter working channel, but at the same time, we conserve this lack of crush artifact that we have with forceps biopsy. So it'd be interesting to see if these uh, uh, biopsies provided by meaning probes that allow us to stay wedged in the segment being biopsied will have an impact on not only diagnostic yield, but hopefully patient outcome. So Dr. Maldonado, if you could give our listeners a closing thought, what do you want them to take away from today's discussion of these guidelines? Uh, well, I, I, again, I think uh, uh, cryobiopsy for ILD is a, a promising technology. I, I would like for the membership who's listening to understand that these are provisional uh, recommendations based on relatively little data. Uh, so they're contingent upon uh, future research coming up and papers are being published all the time. So as often when you do a, a guideline like this, it takes a long time. It takes two to three years from, from inception to publication. And the, the, the data is introduced in literature and, and, and the landscape changes as you're doing the guidelines. So it's really kind of a moving target in, in that way. And so uh, I would encourage listeners to keep track of what's being published. Uh, and, and there's a number of uh, interesting studies that are being conducted right now on cryobiopsies. I would say also that um, when a, a paper raising a red flag for cryobiopsy was published back, I think, in 2016 or 2017 from Penn, uh, we wrote a letter to the editor. We were already talking about doing these guidelines and we recommended uh, three different things that should be done with regards to cryobiopsy and ILD. The first one was to provide evidence-based recommendations, which we've done with these guidelines. We've done this with uh, European guidelines that were published about a year ago or so. Uh, and so I really would encourage listeners to look at these. Uh, and, and, and again, these are primarily uh, expert consensus statements. There are a, lot of, a lot of the recommendations we made uh, are, are based on you know, gut feeling and experience, but I think there are important uh, gut feelings and experiences to, to be shared. Uh, and so um, um, make sure that uh, you know, you're looking at what the rationale is and, and try to apply this to you know, uh, individualized patient care. The second point is, in terms of education, I think this was the second recommendation we made in that letter to the editor, that we really should have ways for, for, for folks to be trained in doing cryobiopsy safely. And there are now a variety of venues that provide that kind of training. And so it's important that before embarking on doing something like this, uh, there's suitable training. It needs to go beyond that, obviously. We need to establish competency, uh, standards uh, and, and, uh, and validated, you know, uh, um, assessment scales for, for, for providers to feel, you know, that they are com competent in the, in, the, in the procedure, and this is clearly something that's lacking. The third point is that I personally believe that all cryobiopsies should be done within the context of a, a registry, and there, there is a registry available uh, here in the U.S. There's a registry in, in Europe, uh, and so all these uh, procedures should be carefully recorded uh, because obviously this will limit the amount of, of selection and publication bias that we have when we re review the literature. It gives us a better sense of what cryobiopsies are like in real life. Uh, and, and, and obviously get involved in research projects. Uh, if, if you're going to be doing a substantial amount of cryobiopsies 
then doing them for the purpose of clinical care is important, but uh, equally important, I, I think, is to drive the uh, research forward and, and getting involved with, uh, you know, either single center or even multi-center trials. Perfect. Well, thank you to Dr. Maldonado for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a CHESS podcast. Until next time. <laughs>